number two of a series that we started last week called People of the Fine Print. And uh, we've been talking about some lesser known individuals that God used to accomplish a great purpose. And we're talking about how God can use us in spite of us. Last week, we looked in the Old Testament at an Old Testament judge named Ehud, the left-handed judge and how God used him. And today we're going to look to the New Testament book of Philemon. We're going to learn about a man named Onesimus. Onesimus. And we're going to start reading here in verse number one. And I want to encourage you to keep your Bible ready and open. We're going to have to dig deep today. And we're going to refer back to these verses quite a bit. And so I want to encourage you to keep your Bible open and ready. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat back in front of you. You can use your phone to follow along as well. If you want to use uh, the Bible on your phone. But we're going to start reading in Philemon. And verse number one, if you are ready to dive into God's word today, would you say amen? Verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer, and to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you, in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy. Everybody say great joy. Anybody have the joy of the Lord today? For we have great joy and consolation in thy love because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. Remember, the bowels were the seat of the seed of the emotions in the New Testament. So he's saying, with, with my heart are are we being refreshed? Your heart is refreshing. Verse 8. Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin or command thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake, I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. Today, from this short book of the Bible called Philemon, I want to bring a message that I'm calling Relationship Rehab. Relationship Rehab. And we're going to dive right in today. Let's have a word of prayer together. Father, thank you so much for this day that you've given us. God, thank you for this opportunity to come together on a weekly basis on the Lord's Day, Sunday, to lift high your name. God, I pray that we would prioritize the corporate gathering of God's people and that we would be faithful in coming together to worship you. God, I pray that you would speak to us in a great and mighty way through your word. God, I pray that we would understand what healthy relationships look like and how we can build healthy relationships for your glory. We love you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, the other day, my youngest daughter, Blakely, she came home from school and she was telling my wife, Katie, what she learned about in school. And uh, they were teaching that day about in Bible class about uh, Joseph and the coat of many colors and how Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. And Blakely came home and said, Mom, I learned about the boy with the rainbow coat. And uh, that's kind of how she was processing it, right? The boy with the, with the rainbow coat. And she, said, and she said, I learned that you're not allowed to have favorites. And Katie said, that's right, Blakely, I love you and, and Luke and and live all the same. You're not allowed to have favorites. And Blakely said, you can't have favorites 
but you can't have the cutest. And I'm the cutest, right, Mom? And uh, she just wanted to make sure that she got that, that spot, that title of being the cutest. And already at a young age, she is learning about the complexity of relationships. How many of you know that life can be full of complexing relationships? Anybody know that today? How many of you have ever experienced the heartbreak of a broken relationship? Anybody like that? There's a whole museum dedicated to broken relationships in Hollywood. It's called the Museum of Broken Relationships. And uh, you can go there, and there are all kinds of artifacts and possessions and, and uh, things that people have donated telling their heartbreak story about their breakup. And it's very therapeutic for some people to donate things that represent their broken relationship. And you can go and read about it, and, and uh, you can feel bad for them, and you can, be, uh, you can find some sort of therapy by doing that. On their website, they say that the Museum of Broken Relationships is a physical and virtual public space created with the sole purpose of treasuring and sharing your heartbreak stories and symbolic possessions. It is a museum about you, about us, and about the ways we love and lose. How many of you know that we live in a culture and a society that is very disoriented when it comes to what a healthy relationship actually looks like? There's all kinds of confusion in our culture today about relationships. There's confusion about marriage. There's confusion about gender. There's confusion about friendships. There's confusion about sex. There is all kinds of confusion today in every direction that you look in our culture. You see it all the time. Recently, Will Smith was on the cover of GQ magazine, and the cover of GQ magazine with Will Smith said, Will speaking his truth. Well, his truth, if you, if you know recently about his situation, he has an interview where he talks about how he had uh, an affair on his wife, and rather than reconciling and coming and making amends, they decided that they would just live in an open relationship. And so now they're practicing and proposing this open relationship where there's no boundaries, there's no rules, everyone can kind of just do uh, whatever you want. The problem with that, and the problem with living in a post-truth culture, in a post-Christian culture, by the way, how many of you know that we're living in a post-Christian culture today? The problem with that is when you live a life with no boundaries and just kind of do whatever you want and whatever you feel, there will inevitably be heartache and pain. And the Museum of Broken Relationships might need to invest in some more real estate because there's going to be a lot more broken relationships. And everywhere we look today, we see heartache and we see pain and and all of the values that we once held dear. Now people are deconstructing those values to uh, present some sort of subjective lifestyle where we can do and live however we want. Uh, Another example would be the pop culture icon Billie Eilish. Uh, She recently said in Vogue magazine, and I quote directly, my thing is I can do whatever I want. It's all about what makes you feel good. But what happens when what makes you feel good is not actually good? Because just because something feels good does not make it right, does not mean that it actually is good. And so as followers of Jesus, the question is not what makes me feel good and what is my truth. The question is what is God's truth? What is God teaching? What does God say? What does God have to say about relationships? Not how do I feel about having a relationship? Because if it's all about how I feel, uh, then we're bound for misery. But what does God say? And in fact, God has a lot to say about relationships. In fact, God says that relationships are the two most important, is the most important thing in life. Your relationship with God and your relationship with people. The two most important things in life. Uh, Mark's gospel says it this way. Mark chapter 12, verse 30. And thou, Jesus said, shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. 
and with all thy strength. And so first, you love God and cultivate that relationship. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Who is your neighbor? It's anyone and everyone in need. It's, it's the whole world. We are commanded to love all people, red, yellow, black, and white. They're all precious in God's sight, and we're commanded to love all people. And, and so what Jesus said is loving God and loving people is our, is our primary objective. Now, that is completely contrary to the teaching of culture today. Because the teaching of culture today says love yourself. Take care of yourself. Follow your dreams. Chase your dreams. Do uh, your truth. Do whatever makes you happy. But according to the Bible, our love is first and foremost to be upward and then outward before it is inward. Upward to God, outward to people. And so we live in this culture where there's a lot of confusion about uh, relationships and a lot of confusion uh, about what a healthy relationship looks like. And so the question that I want us to consider today as we dive into the book of Philemon is how do we curate and cultivate a healthy relationship? Does that interest anybody today? H- how do I build a healthy relationship? Or, or how do I build back a healthy relationship? Because we live in 2021, uh, the era of cancel culture, where if someone uh, disagrees with me, canceled. If I don't like someone, canceled. If they say something that is not in my uh, spectrum, canceled. And we are, we are quick to cancel. We are quick to dismiss. But can I tell you that that is not in alignment with the heart of God? I'm thankful that God didn't cancel me because of my mistakes. I'm thankful God didn't cancel me because of my sin, that his grace is sufficient. The heart of God is not cancellation. The heart of God is restoration. And this is what we see in the book of Philemon, this, this restoration process being played out between Philemon and a man named Onesimus. And so today we're going to dive into this uh, book of the Bible. And I want to encourage you to keep it open, Philemon. We're going to dive right in. Let's look at verse number one. Everybody with me? Verse one. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon. Uh, during this culture, they would often write their names at the beginning of a letter because it was a scroll that they would un- unravel. And so they wanted to say right off the bat who the letter was from. And so Paul was writing this letter. He was writing it from Rome under house arrest. Many commentators call this uh, this letter the postcard epistle because it was a very short letter to one individual named Philemon. Okay, Unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer, verse 2. And to our beloved Aphia, uh, most believe that is Philemon's wife. And so Paul's writing to Philemon and his wife, Aphia, and uh, unto uh, Archippus, our fellow soldier. Many believe that was his son. And to the church that is in thy house. And so Philemon is actually hosting the church at Colossae in his own home. And Paul had, had previously led Philemon to Christ and introduced him to Jesus, perhaps in Ephesus or in Colossae, led him to Christ. And now Philemon is hosting the church of Colossae in his own home. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers. And so we're introduced to Philemon. Philemon was a man who was led to Christ by the Apostle Paul. They had a great relationship. Philemon, as we will see in just a moment, also had a slave or a servant named Onesimus. Now, in the Roman Empire, slavery was extremely widespread. Most historians and scholars say that uh, there were more slaves in the Roman Empire than there were Roman citizens. Completely widespread. 
Slavery was everywhere. Now, I want to pause and make it abundantly clear that as followers of Jesus, we believe that all human beings were created in the image of God. And as a result of that, we should be the foremost champions of ending slavery today. Because in the gospel, there is no room for partiality. There is no room for discrimination. Jesus died for all people and his love extends for all people. Do you believe it today? And so we see that Philemon had this slave named Onesimus. Now, slavery in the New Testament during this time period of the Roman Empire was a little bit different than the slavery we might think of and the horrible acts that took place in the 1800s and uh, slavery, slavery throughout history. Uh, slavery in, in the Roman Empire was not always based on race. It was not always based on discrimination. Many times it was an issue of economics. If someone was struggling financially, they would sell themselves to be a slave so that they could provide for their family. Once the debt was paid, then they would be on their way. And so slavery was extremely widespread, extremely common. And Philemon had this slave named Onesimus. And what happened is Onesimus decided that he was going to betray Philemon and he was going to steal money from Philemon and he was going to run away. And so that's exactly what he did. Onesimus stole some money from Philemon and he ran away. Now Onesimus, this man, is a runaway slave. Now, to be a runaway slave in the first century was a very dangerous thing to do. Uh, Commentators tell us that if you were a runaway slave in the Roman Empire and you were captured and caught, they would sometimes burn an F onto your forehead standing for fugitivus or, or fugitive. And so this was a very dangerous thing for Onesimus to do. He stole some money. He ran away. And where did he go? He went to Rome. And the reason he went to Rome is because that was a pretty smart place to go. Rome had upwards of 870,000 people at this time. This was a place where you could kind of blend in and uh, hide in the shadows. And so Onesimus steals from Philemon. He's on the run. He goes to Rome. And you'll never guess when he gets to Rome who he meets. The Apostle Paul. He just so happens to come across the Apostle Paul while Paul is under house arrest in Rome. Can I tell you that in God's economy, what looks like a coincidence is actually providence? That God is behind the scenes orchestrating every detail in advance. And so Paul happens to meet Onesimus, and Onesimus meets Paul, and Paul, guess what? Leads Onesimus to Christ. And so now his life has changed forever. He is no longer a slave. He is a son of the Most High. And not only that, now Onesimus is serving with Paul there in Rome. They are co-laborers together in the ministry. And God was using them in this season. And then Paul started to ask some questions and started to connect the dots. And he says, wait, wait a second, Onesimus. You're from Colossae? You know Philemon? You know Philemon? You were from Philemon's household? I led Philemon to Christ. And as Paul starts to figure out who Onesimus is, uh, Paul realizes that there has been an estranged and broken and complex relationship between Philemon and between Onesimus. And so what Paul decides to do is he says, there has to be reconciliation here. There has to be restoration here. And so what Paul decides to do is he decides to write a letter to Philemon and deliver it to Philemon by the hands of Onesimus. And so we come to this letter. And in this letter, what I believe that we find are four key components to building a healthy relationship. And so if you're taking notes today, I want to give us four ways that we can build a healthy relationship or we can build back a healthy relationship. Are you ready today? Anybody else ready today? Four ways. Number one, we need to cultivate spiritual maturity. If we're serious about relational rehab and restoration, we have to start by taking a look within and asking, am I being a spiritually mature person? Because so much conflict, so much dissension, so much disunity is simply a result of spiritual immaturity. 
And so we have to take a look within. Am I a spiritually mature person, able to forgive, able to bring about restoration? And we see that in Philemon. He demonstrates what a spiritually mature person looks like. Now, if you're taking notes, let me give you a couple things to write down. Four characteristics of a spiritually mature person, okay? Number one, a spiritually mature person, they love Jesus. They love Jesus. Okay, I want you to see it with Philemon, verse 5. Everybody still with me? Notice verse 5. He says, hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus. He says, I've heard all about how much you love Jesus. What a great compliment. I hope that someday when I die, there would be some people that said, you know, he loved Jesus. You know, we can get so caught up in this world loving all kinds of things and loving certain foods and loving certain uh, sports and loving certain hobbies, and I think we should. The Bible says that God has given us all things richly to enjoy. Hey, but we better love Jesus. He first loved us. And Philemon was a man that simply loved Jesus. You know how you can tell if someone actually loves Jesus? John 14, 15 says, if you love me, keep my commandments. We can just say that we love Jesus. Are we actually following him at his word? It's more than just lip service. Does our lifestyle demonstrate a changed life that, that Jesus has, has saved us and transformed us? And so Philemon, he loved Jesus. Okay, A spiritually mature person, they love Jesus. Here's the second one. They love people. They love people. Okay. Now, notice verse 5 again. He says, hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. All saints. So what does that tell us? Philemon loved the saints. He loved people. We know that he loved people because the Bible tells us in verse number 2 that the church at Colossae met in his house. That meant that people were always in his house. He was always entertaining. He was a hospitable person, always had company over. I grew up in a pastor's home. We had people in our house all the time. Uh, Our doors were always open. We constantly were entertaining. My parents were constantly having people over, very hospitable. And sometimes when I was younger, that would frustrate me because I would show up after basketball practice or I would show up after school and there would just be people in my house. Sometimes I would go in my room and there'd be people in my room and I'm like, who are you? And why are you sitting on my bed? That's weird. You know, like, uh, like a lot of times I would just show up surprised. I remember I had my dad, someone gave my dad this, this Joe Montana signed San Francisco 49ers football helmet. And it was a really awesome football helmet signed by Joe Montana in a nice case up on a high shelf. And uh, that was one of my most prized possessions. I loved that helmet. I came home one day and there were some kids playing in my room. They took down that football helmet, took the case off, put the helmet on, and they were playing football in my room. In that moment, I did not have a love for the saints, right? I wanted just to punch some saints in that moment, right? We know that, that Philemon, he had a love for the saints. The, the church met in his house. He, he knew all about uh, what it was like having people uh, constantly around and having to serve and, and getting to serve and getting to be a blessing to all the people that were in his house. But he loved it. Why? He loved people. I wonder today, do you love people? Now, the Bible tells us that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, but the Bible also says that we are to love those especially of the household of faith. Do we love the people in this room? When someone gives us a dirty look, are we, are we quick to forgive? If someone talks to us in a tone that we don't like, are we going to hold, hold that over them, or are we going to be quick to forgive and show spiritual maturity? See, spiritual maturity requires someone loving Jesus and loving people. By the way, uh, you can't claim to love Jesus if you don't love people. Why? The Bible says this in 1 John 4. Everybody with me? 1 John 4, 20. If a man say, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? 
And so don't just claim that you love Jesus if you're never demonstrating love to the people of God and to the household of faith. And so uh, Philemon, he was spiritually mature. He loved Jesus. He loved people. Here's the third one. Spiritually mature people, they look to serve. They're, They're delighted to serve. Notice verse number six. That the communication of thy faith, the sharing of your faith, may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you. In Christ Jesus. Now, there's a lot of words there, and uh, it could be a little bit uh, confusing to ascertain what, what Paul is saying here. But, uh, but I believe what he's saying is this. When you are a spiritually mature person, you will acknowledge how good God has been. Did you see in verse number six at the end? He says, acknowledging of every good thing which is in you. How many of you would acknowledge today that God has been good to us? And the Bible says that we are daily loaded with benefits, that he has blessed us beyond all measure. Now, a spiritually mature person will recognize God has been good. I'm going to acknowledge that. And the acknowledgement that God has been good will activate our faith and make our faith more effective. That's what he's saying here in verse number six. Uh, that, that, that the communication, the sharing of your faith might become effectual by the acknowledging of that, which is good. Acknowledge that God has been so good to you. And the natural response will be, man, I want to serve. I want to love. I want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. A spiritually mature person does not look at serving in the church as a, as a have to. It's a get to. Why? Because I love Jesus and I love people. And if you love Jesus and you love people, then a natural byproduct of that will be serving. That was Philemon. Why? He was spiritually mature. He loved Jesus. He loved people. He looked to serve. Here's the fourth one that we see of a spiritually mature person. They look to refresh others. They look to refresh others. Notice verse 7. For we have great joy and consolation or comfort in thy love. Because the bowels or, or the, the, the heart of the saints are refreshed by the brother. You see, the, the saints were refreshed by him. You know, some people are just refreshing to be around. Some people, on the contrary, are draining to be around, right? Constantly sucking the life out of the room and, and cynical and negative all the time. It can't be done, can't be done. And I don't know, and grumbling and complaining and very draining. But then there are other people, and it's so refreshing to be around someone that says, hey, let's go for it. Let's try it. Hey, can I encourage you? Hey, can I pray for you? Hey, it's going to be a great day today. Hey, I want to encourage you. Seek to be a refreshing person. Philemon was simply a refreshing person. He wanted to go around and lift other people up and encourage other people. That's what we see in verse number 7. 2 Corinthians 7.13 says this, Therefore we were comforted in your comfort, yea, and exceedingly the more joyed we for the joy of Titus. Why? Because his spirit was refreshed by you all. Uh, Determine today that you're going to be a person that refreshes others. Uh, That is a spiritually mature person. And so we see that if we're going to be serious about uh, relational restoration, we have to cultivate spiritual maturity. Everybody on track with that so far? Philemon could experience uh, this restoration first because he was just spiritually mature and willing to move forward. That's number one. Here's a second thought. Number two is this. We need tact in our communication. So we need to cultivate spiritual maturity, but we need tact in our communication. All right, notice verse number eight. He says, wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient. The word enjoin in the Greek is epitasso. It means to order or to command. And so Paul says, I could command this. I could demand this. But instead, verse nine, yet for love's sake, I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I love Paul's tact here. Paul says, you know, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, with apostolic authority, I could demand and command you to make amends with Onesimus. 
That's the right thing to do. I could write this letter and say, hey, this is what you're doing, Philemon, whether you like it or not. I could command this with authority, but I'm not going to command. He says, I don't want to demand. I don't want to use my authority to command you to do this. Rather than make a demand, I'm going to make a request. And then he says in verse 9, for love's sake. See, the motivation to to be kind to others, the motivation to serve, the motivation to follow Jesus is not out of duty or obligation. Love is the motivation. God has been so good to me, it makes sense to serve him. It's our reasonable service. And what we see here is Paul is using this this language of of tact. Now, uh, many people have called this the postcard epistle because it's short. Uh, Many other people call this the polite epistle. Because in this epistle, in this letter, Paul is being very polite, and he's using great tact, and he's showing us effective communication. Now, the Bible says this in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. A soft answer turns away wrath, but grievous words stir up. Everybody say stir up. Grievous words are going to stir up anger. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge aright, but the mouth of fools poureth out foolishness. You know, I've been teaching my son Luke how to play golf. And uh, we've been going to the uh, driving range every once in a while, and I'll teach him how to uh, swing uh, the golf club, and he loves it. He can be at the driving range all day long just hitting golf balls, hitting golf balls. And I'm trying to teach Luke, though, that there are certain clubs that you need to use for certain occasions in golf. How many of you, anybody played golf in here today? Okay, like two of you. Everyone else, just pretend like you know what golf is for a second, okay? And I brought some golf clubs with me today. And... uh, And so I'm trying to tell Luke, there are certain times when you need to use certain clubs. So if you want to hit the ball far and you're starting off off a tee, you might want to use a driver, right? Because this club will allow you to hit the ball the furthest, potentially. And so you want to use the driver when you want to hit the ball far. Uh, There there might be another club that you would use if you ever uh, get into the sand trap, right? You don't want to use a driver. You'd want to use something like this, a lob wedge, something that will make the ball go higher so you can get out of the sand. You don't want to to hit this very far. This club won't let you hit it far, but it'll go high. Uh, There's another club that you would want to use if you make it all the way to the green. Uh, Once you get up to the green, you want to use a putter, right? And a putter is something that you will uh, use very gently, and you will want to hit that soft. Well, when I was teaching that to Luke, you know, the first time we went to the driving range, we went to the putting green, and uh, he did not grab his putter. He grabbed his driver, and he was just swinging at the ball as hard as he could, damaging the green, and people were, like, looking out. The balls were going everywhere, right? And uh, he was using the wrong club. See, the truth is today, we might have something that is truthful to say, but if we use the wrong club, we will render the truth ineffective, See, there are times when you might need to use the driver. How many of you remember the book of Galatians when Paul was hammering home a point and he was saying, hey, uh, you foolish Galatians, you've drifted from the gospel. Paul was using the driver. He was hammering home the point. In fact, in chapter 3 of Galatians, he literally says, oh, dear idiots of Galatia, why are you doing this? That was the driver. There are other times when Paul recognized, hey, I need to use gentleness in my speech. Like the book of Philemon, he's going to be gentle in how he says it. See, As followers of Jesus, we need to make sure that we are speaking the truth, but we're speaking the truth in love. It's the same goal. It's the same. In golf, it's the same ball, right? You're hitting the same ball. You're trying to get it to the same place, but you've got to use a different club depending on where you are. And so if we're going to have tact in our communication, we have to recognize what club am I going to use? Because a lot of times we are hammering people over the head or being too soft when we need to be direct. And what Paul is demonstrating here is that if we're serious about restoration, we have to use tact in our conversation and in our communication. Hey, let's use the right club. The Bible puts it this way in Colossians chapter 4, verse number 6. Let your speech be always with grace. Everybody say grace. Seasoned 
with salt. That means it enhances life. You know, salt makes things better, right? Nobody likes McDonald's french fries without any salt, right? If you get McDonald's french fries without salt, uh, it's an upsetting day. And you want to make sure that you have salt because it makes it better. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Different people might require different clubs. And so instead of hammering home a truth and beating people over the head, maybe let's use a little bit of tact. Let's use a little bit of grace. Let's use a little bit of wisdom. And ask God to, to, to give us discernment in the words that we use. Randy Alcorn said this, Countless mistakes in marriage, in parenting, ministry, and other relationships are failures to balance grace and truth. Sometimes we neglect both. Often we choose one over the other. So what is Paul teaching us? We need to cultivate spiritual maturity. We need to use tact in our communication. Now, up until this point, uh, Philemon might have been wondering, okay, what is Paul really getting at? What is, Paul, uh, what is Paul trying to communicate here? And then Paul says in verse number 10 this. He says, which in time past, or verse 10, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. And I can imagine Philemon was shocked to hear the name Onesimus. If Onesimus hand-delivered the letter, I'm imagining Philemon was shocked to see Onesimus. It had been years since Onesimus stole that money and ran away. Years. Philemon and his wife, Aphia, probably forgot all about Onesimus, or it was a bad memory in the back of their minds. And then one day, Onesimus shows up, and we see this letter, and Paul says, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. The word begotten in the Greek is gneo. It means to father a child. What Paul was saying is that Onesimus is my spiritual son. What is he saying? I led him to Christ. He's saying, hey, your servant Onesimus is now a believer in Jesus Christ. And so now Philemon's trying to process all of this, and he's trying to navigate what's going on, and, and I'm sure flooded with emotion seeing Onesimus, and Onesimus perhaps flooded with emotion seeing Philemon. And this brings us to our third thought today. Number three is this. If we're going to build healthy relationships, we need a spirit of self-sacrifice. Everybody still with me this morning? We need a spirit of self-sacrifice. We see it starting in verse 12. He says, whom I have sent again, thou therefore receive him, that is mine own bowels. He says, I'm going to send Onesimus to you, and with him is accompanied my heart. Verse 13, whom I would have retained with me. Okay, that's the phrase I want us to zero in on for a second. He says, would have retained with me. Paul said, if I had it my way, I would have kept Onesimus with me. Notice what he says, verse 13. In, in thy stead, he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. Paul said, if I'm being honest, I would have rather kept Onesimus with me. Uh, me and Onesimus, we, we started serving the Lord together, and Onesimus was my friend, and here I am in prison, Paul says, and maybe not a lot of friends and relationships, and Onesimus was an encouragement to me. And Philemon, if I had it my way, I would just keep Onesimus with me, uh, but I know that what Onesimus needs and what you need is restoration. Uh, there's a relationship that's broken that needs to be mended. Verse 14, he says, but without thy mind, I would do nothing. He says, I, I want to make sure that you're in the loop on this. I, I want to make sure that I have your heart in this, Philemon, that thy benefit should not be, as it were, of necessity, but willingly. Again, he's using tact in his conversation. He says, I don't want to force your hand in this. I want you to be willing to uh, forgive and willing to restore this relationship. But I love Paul's heart here. He says, he, he's saying you can't have relational restoration without having a spirit of self-sacrifice. Do you see how Paul was preferring Philemon and Onesimus above himself? He says, if I had it my way, I would keep you with me. 
But instead, I'm going to sacrifice. It's not about what I want, and I want to be a blessing to you. If you're serious about relational restoration, it can't always be about winning the argument. It can't always be about being right. It can't always be about being first. It can't always be about getting your way and getting to do things how you want to do them. Hey, if you're serious about having a strong, healthy relationship, it will require self-sacrifice. I'm going to die to self. I'm going to live for others. John Stott, he said it this way. Self-love vitiates all relationships. It destroys them. He gives an example. Diotrephes slandered the apostle John, cold-shouldered the missionaries, and excommunicated loyal believers all because he loved himself and wanted to have preeminence. Personal vanity still lies at the root of most dissensions in every local church today. Personal vanity. You want to know why sometimes we can't have relational harmony? We have too much personal vanity. You can't have relational harmony while life is all about me and what I want and getting other people to serve my agenda. Paul could have easily said, Onesimus, he's going to stay with me. This is going to be better. Philemon will understand. He might not even want to see you. Just stay with me. But instead, Paul had the spirit of self-sacrifice. You know, in the end times, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, for, in 2 Timothy 3, 2, he said, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Seems like we're living in the end times then, right? Men shall be lovers of them their own selves. Now, ultimately, our greatest example in this is Jesus. Uh, Jesus in Philippians 2, 4 through 8, look not every man on his own things, but every man on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Anybody thankful that our God became man, took upon him the form of a servant to go to the cross for your sin and for my sin. We need a spirit of self-sacrifice. Here's number four. Everybody with me? Number four, we need to recognize God's sovereignty. How many of you believe that we worship a sovereign God today? That he's in control, that he's the king of kings, he's Lord of lords. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Seated at the right hand is a position of prominence, a position of control and power. Jesus is in control. And what we see in this text is that Jesus is in control. I want you to see it starting in verse 15. For perhaps, Paul says, he therefore departed. Talking about Onesimus, departed is the same word that we have for divorced. And so what he's saying is you've had this broken relationship. You've had this estranged, separated relationship for a season, verse 15, that, the end of verse 15, thou shouldest receive him forever. Please don't miss this. This is so powerful. Paul said to Philemon, hey, you might not understand why this happened with Onesimus. You might not understand why Onesimus stole money and ran away. But maybe God was using this departure for a season, for a season, so that you could be with Onesimus forever. How could he be with Onesimus forever? Because Paul shared with him the good news of the gospel message, the life-giving, life-changing message of Jesus. And Onesimus accepted Christ. And because he accepted Christ, he is no longer a servant to Philemon. Now he is a brother in Christ. And he will spend forever and eternity with Jesus, with Paul, with Philemon. Is anybody thankful today that what the enemy meant for evil, God can turn it for good? It was a season. Paul is saying to Philemon, hey, I know you haven't been able to connect the dots in this season. But just know that God has an eternal plan. I'm thankful that God has an eternal plan even through our difficult seasons. 
even when we can't make sense of it. Uh, did not Joseph learn this in the Old Testament when he was betrayed by his brothers? Right? He was thrown into a pit, thrown into slavery, thrown into prison, 13 years of heartache. Then he's elevated in Egypt to be the second in command. Now all of a sudden he has power. Now all of a sudden there's a famine in the land and his brothers need food to survive. They go to Egypt and now Joseph is able to save his family because they betrayed him. See, that's, why, that's why Joseph could forgive. You want to know a powerful lesson in forgiveness, study the life of Joseph. He forgave his brothers. Why? Because he recognized that God is ultimately in control. That's why Joseph is the one that said, what you meant for evil, selling me into slavery, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And that's the right perspective that we ought to have. See, if you're serious about forgiveness, and maybe today you're struggling to forgive, Maybe there's someone in your life that has wronged you, that has hurt you, and you just think, I, I can't forgive that person. Well, maybe take a step back and ask, do I believe that God is truly sovereign? Because if God is in control, and if God can work behind the scenes to orchestrate every detail, then forgiveness can flow. Because I trust God. I don't understand how it all works out. There, there's pain that, 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 that is in my life, that, that pain that I feel, that hurt that I feel. But ultimately, even through that pain, I trust that God has a purpose. I trust that God has a purpose in my pain. If I trust that God has a purpose in my pain, then I can forgive. Now, there is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Because you might be thinking, well, someone has wronged me in deep ways, and I just don't think I can trust them again. So should I forgive them? Well, forgiveness says, I forgive you. Reconciliation says, now I can trust you. And so you can forgive without trusting we're all commanded to show forgiveness. And this is the truth that Paul was showing to Onesimus and to Philemon. Hey, there's power in forgiveness. Now, the reconciliation process might be painful. It might take a lot of time. The road to recovery might include a lot of painful consequences. But I'm thankful that because of Jesus, uh, that reconciliation too is possible. And so forgiveness is, is required. That's why the Bible says in Colossians 3.13, forbearing one another and forgiving one another if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. I'm thankful for the forgiveness of Jesus today. And the forgiveness that has come to us should then flow through us. Be people of forgiveness. Notice verse 16. He says, not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother, beloved. I love how Paul is, is saying, you know, the gospel completely annihilates slavery. See, Paul was saying, when someone gets saved, and when you really understand the power of the gospel, you need to recognize he's no more a servant. He's above a servant. He's a brother. See how the gospel completely changes our perspective on it? He says, now he's a brother, verse 16. Especially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord? If thou count me, therefore, a partner, receive him as myself. What is he saying? Forgive Onesimus. I know he stole money. I know he ran away. Forgive. Forgive. There can be reconciliation. And this leads us to the last thought today. You have one more in you? Last one. If we're going to build strong relationships or build back a strong relationship, number five, we need to live out the gospel message. We need to live it out. Live out the gospel message. Notice verse number 18. Verse 18 says, if he hath wronged thee, he says, Philemon, if Onesimus has wronged you or owes you aught, watch this phrase, put that on mine account. Put it on my account. I'll pay it. Philemon, whatever Onesimus owes you, however he wronged you, I'll pay it back. Put it on my account. 
verse 19. I, Paul, have written it with my own hand. I will repay it. And then I like this phrase. He says, albeit I did not say to thee how thou owest unto me, even thine own self besides. He was basically saying, let me remind you, I I led you to Christ. (laughs) Let me remind you that you wouldn't even know Jesus if it weren't for me. But I love this. I love this phrase where he says, I'll put it on my account. What, What was Paul doing? Paul was not only believing the gospel, he was exemplifying the gospel. See, I think all of us are thankful for the gospel today. If we've accepted Jesus Christ, man, praise the Lord for the power of the good news of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Man, I'm thankful for the power of the gospel, right? Paul believed the gospel, but here in verse 18, what he's, do, what he's doing is this, living out the gospel. See, the gospel is not just the starting line of Christianity. The gospel is the entirety of Christianity. Here's the truth. The book of Philemon, here's what I want you to see. This is the most important part. The book of Philemon is a powerful picture and portrait of the gospel message. Here's the truth. All of us today, we are Onesimus. All of us. We are Onesimus because we were once slaves to sin and servants to sin. And because we were born in a sin nature and because we were servants and slaves to sin, we rebelled against the holy God and we ran from God and we uh, rebelled against God. The Bible says in Isaiah that our iniquities have separated us from God. But I'm thankful that God saw us in our alienation and God saw us in our separation and he sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, and Jesus came and died on the cross and he said, put it on my account. Jesus, with nail-pierced hands, stood before the Father and said, put it on my account. I'll pay the price that they couldn't pay. Paul said, I'll pay the price he couldn't pay. Paul was living out the gospel message. And so I believe all of us today have a decision to make. All of us today. Either, number one, you accept the gospel and you trust in Jesus Christ. The gospel is the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven. And then he rose again on the third day. And there's new life in Christ. And so today, if you've never done that, today can be the day of salvation for you. You can accept the gospel. That's decision number one. Decision number two today is to decide, I'm going to live out the gospel. Just like Paul said, put it on my account. Release the debt. Today, we can show forgiveness and loving kindness and grace to the people that are in our lives, reflecting the beauty of the gospel message. This is what we see Paul doing today. If we're going to be serious about relational restoration, we have to live out the gospel message. And I want to read these last few verses today. And as I do, I want to encourage you to join me as we read them, starting in verse 20. He says, Yea, brother, let me have the joy of thee in the Lord. Refresh my bowels, my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee. Paul said, I'm confident that you're going to follow through knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say. He says, you're going to go above and beyond. 22. But withal, prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. Paul says, man, after this house of rest in Rome, I want to come back and I want to spend some time with you. So make make me a place to stay. Verse 23. There salute thee Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow laborers. He says, say hi to the boys. Verse 25, watch this. The grace 
of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. What a fitting conclusion to a letter about relational restoration. Restoration with Jesus cannot be made possible without grace. Are you serious about having relational rehab? We need to understand that the grace of God is sufficient. You say, it's impossible. You don't know my situation. You don't know how I've been wrong. The grace of God is sufficient. The grace of God comes in like an ocean, like an overwhelming water that can consume us and transform us. It's undeserved favor. And so Paul concludes this letter to Philemon. And Philemon was thinking, man, this is going to be hard. Remember grace, that undeserved favor that God demonstrated to you. Now, be a dispenser of that grace. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes today.